This is Ariel Halevi with my podcast, The Greater Context. And in today's episode, I'll be discussing the concept of operational empathy. We'll be exploring the power of this core human emotion within large matrix-managed organizations. And we'll be looking at some of the parallels that exist in the power of this emotion between individual human beings and modern-day corporations. Hello again, my fellow cave people, struggling in the midst of the digital revolution. It's time for another episode of The Greater Context with Ariel Halevi. Hello, hello, hello. I'm really thrilled to, to be back here today. We're going to be talking about a concept, um, a term I've coined over the last, I don't know, year, year and a half, which I'm very excited about and which I've been spending a lot of time sharing with pretty much anybody who'd be willing to listen. Uh, and today I'm going to be putting it in this podcast um, maybe for the first time officially as recorded content. But before I start, I want to kind of give a shout out to the uh, really gracious hosts that are allowing me to record this session today, which is, of course, being recorded at the Google for Startups campus here in Tel Aviv. Um, Google for Startup campus is really Google's home for startups. Tel Aviv has an incredible uh, innovation ecosystem and many, many, many startups. I think I read somewhere that there are more startups in Tel Aviv than there are in all of Europe. And part of that is possible because there are a lot of um, players who make really, really valuable resources available for uh, startups, especially early stage startups that help them uh, become more successful and help them become contributors to this growing ecosystem, which then feeds on itself and supports itself um, and really creates a sense of abundance. The campus offers startups the opportunity to gain access to Google products, connections, and best practices, as well as programming and events for startups. And this is, in fact, I am now uh, in the Google Creator Studio. Uh, and I must say, there really is quite the state-of-the-art uh, video and podcast facilities that are available. Uh, and if you want to learn more about all the things that this campus offers, you can go to www.campus.co slash Tel Aviv. So thanks again, uh, Google Campus, for this. So I want to talk to the, today about really an aha moment I've had. I've, I've been, and I think I mentioned this to you in a past uh, episode, I've been spending the last 20 years, uh, really professionally speaking, focusing on the human element within organizations. I, I think I've been spending all my life trying to understand the human element, but it's been almost 20 years since I really started making a career out of it. And every now and then, working with a really diverse set of companies and organizations all around the world, and different age groups and different uh, industries, occasionally it all comes together and there's this aha moment. And about a year ago, I had one of these aha moments. And it all has to do with what makes us behave in a certain way in the workplace. I don't know if you've noticed this, but at least for me, it feels that we all inhabit, in the very least, at least two separate entities. The one that dominates how we behave at home and the one that dominates how we behave in the workplace. And it's really interesting when you think about how different we are in these two environments. To me, it was very curious when I kind of noticed that the very same people, if they met in a social interaction, would behave with one another in one way, and if they meet each other at work, they don't just behave in a different way, 
they behave in an almost opposite way. And it never ceases to amaze me just how different these behavioral norms are. You know, again, the workplace and the non-professional workplace. And I try to ask myself, why? I mean, it's almost like everything we learn growing up, so many of the obvious rules of conduct that we adopt during the formative stages of our socialization growing up, it's almost like when we finish breakfast or, you know, sip our coffee, put it in the sink, grab our bag and head to work, we leave all of that in the kitchen. It's as if all of the social dynamics that make sense to us at home, we just don't think they make sense at work, even though our workplace is populated by the same people. Not the exact same individuals, but the same people who after work, you know, go to the pub, go home, go to parties. It really, really is very interesting. I'll give you an example just to illustrate what I mean. You know, this, this is a common exercise I do in my workshops. It, and, and I tell people, take out your phones. And you can do this now. Take out your phone. And I want you to think about somebody, not from your working environment, somebody from your personal life, a friend, an acquaintance that you've gotten to know well on the one hand over the years, but who you've dropped out of touch with. When I say dropped out of touch, I mean you haven't spoken to them in at least a year. You kind of forgot to wish them a happy birthday. You haven't interacted with them at all on social media. This happens, right? We, we meet a lot of people. Um, life has its own pace. People move away. Maybe they don't move away, but we move away from them, at least emotionally speaking, because we're busy, busy with other people, all kinds of people that we drop out of touch with. And let's assume you've dropped out of touch with this individual for at least two to three years. Now what I want you to do is I want you to draft the following text message and then see if you're willing to send it. And the text message goes like this. Um, hey, Julia, it's been a long time. I really hope everything's going well with you. Listen, do you mind if I can borrow your car this weekend? And this is where pretty much everybody in the room starts laughing, obviously. Nobody presses send on this message. Maybe with one exception, I've had somebody actually press send, and it was quite an interesting outcome. But why? Why does everybody laugh? Why does everybody respond with a knee-jerk reaction of immediate discomfort? It's almost like there's this deep, intuitive sense of... Yeah, there's no way I'm sending this message. Why? Well, because we grow up really understanding it's a basic social tenet that meaningful friendships and meaningful relationships cannot develop just based on I'll call you when I need you, right? The whole idea of how we interact with people in our lives is that we interact with them just for the sake of interacting with them because we like interacting with them. It's not that we need them for anything specific. This is what we call non-functional interaction, right? It's, it's, a, it's a type of interaction with somebody that isn't driven by an immediate need, certainly not by an immediate tangible um, benefit. And then we go to work. Now, try to think about the last week at work. Try to think about all the times you've reached out to somebody or they reached out to you at work. How many times were these not functional interactions? How many times did you reach out to people just because you wanted to hear how their weekend was, you wanted to hear about their vacation, you wanted to share with them an interesting anecdote from a book or, you know, something that you were exposed to? 
right? It, it's it's almost never. It's certainly certainly not at the propensity that dominates our personal life. And you might say, yeah, that makes sense because at work we're there to work, right? I'm not. I don't go to work to make friends necessarily. I'm certainly not there to make friends. I'm there to be productive. I'm there to earn a living. I'm there to develop professionally. Um, we all are part of an organization that has strategic and operational targets. And we're there. We're hired specifically for the roles uh, that we are hired for so that we can contribute to a highly functional goal. That's right. I get that. But it doesn't change the fact that the people we interact with just like us are human beings and human beings do not forge meaningful bonds and meaningful connections, which are in fact important for collective functional interactions. They don't do it just based on functional interactions. The same people that you would never send that personal text message to asking to borrow their car after not having been in touch with them for three years, the same people are the ones that you're interacting with at work, right? At least the same operating systems in their minds. And so it's really, really very interesting. So for me, while exploring the human element of organizations, other than finding that we operate very differently with other individuals when we're at work and when we're at home, I found another interesting insight, which is the human nature of organizations, right? So the first point talks about our individual behavior, you know, differences between work and home. The second insight is about the human nature of the organization itself. And it became more and more apparent to me that organizations are people too. If you think about it, doesn't it really seem like organizations have human traits? They're very similar to human beings, right? They have a character, they have a nature, they have a culture, they have a DNA. I mean, how many times have you heard the concept of organizational DNA? Let's talk about our DNA. Well, DNA is a biological element, right? Usually the building block of life. Organizations are not living organisms, right? Well, I would propose that in many, many respects they are because organizations are in fact the product of a collective of organic life forms. So why should that collective not bring to that entity many of the traits and characteristics of an organic life form? And so organizations are people too. And this realization, along with the dual nature of our interpersonal dynamics, which I mentioned before, led me to a term that I really was, was sure had already been coined. I immediately went online and looked for it because I wanted to see what other people said about it, if, you know, what other resources were provided about it. And I was quite surprised where I couldn't find in any of the various professional sources I explored, at least, I couldn't find any reference to this specific term. And that term is operational empathy. Now, I define operational empathy as our ability to understand and relate to the challenges and frustrations of our key stakeholders and critical interfaces. Now, let's let's unpack this for just a minute, okay? So, um, in the workplace, there are a lot of people that we depend on. Now, some of the people we depend on, we report to. Some of the people that we depend on report to us. And in those cases, operational empathy, or rather interpersonal empathy is important, but those are not interactions where I would relate or apply the concept of operational empathy. I'm talking about 
critical interfaces in the workplace who are either people or organizations that we depend on in order to achieve our set goals in the workplace, but whom we have no formal authority over. So think about, and we'll talk about this later when we talk about the evolution of the matrix management structure of organizations, but think about a department that has to sign off on something before you can complete the task or a department that is somewhere on the critical path of what you're doing, but it's another department, right? They don't report to you. Um, you can't hire or fire anybody there. You don't determine uh, any of their promotions or, or benefits, right? So let's say HR wants to bring somebody like myself into the company um, and they set me up as a new vendor. They can't issue me a purchase order or PO without procurement approving the process. Now, Procurement doesn't report to HR. HR can't force procurement to do anything, at least from an organizational hierarchical perspective. Sure, they can fight, they can escalate, but there's no hierarchy there in the official organizational structure. And so if procurement doesn't approve the PO, we can't be brought in. And this can have a material impact on HR's ability to succeed in a project where they felt bringing somebody like myself in was important. So when procurement sends an email saying, wait a minute, but we have another vendor that we already have a contract with who's willing to offer lower prices or who's giving us a bulk discount or who already knows some of the other organizations or please fill out these forms that it will take us three weeks to approve, but HR wants to bring me in next week. When this happens, um, the natural response of whoever it is that wanted to bring me in is to get upset at procurement. Right. And to say, oh, again, these people, they don't get it. You know, this is a vendor I know. I trust them. I want to work with them. And again, they're, they're you know, they're, they're slowing us down. They're such bureaucrats. The natural response to lack of collaboration from a critical interface is not empathy, is not operational empathy, is, is anger because somebody's slowing me down. Whereas that anger may be very misplaced. Do I know why? procurement is doing what they're doing. Maybe they're just following the standard operating procedures that they had put in place after a three-day strategy session where they really thought of all the ways of improving their contribution to the organization. They read best practices from all over the world. They learned that what they're doing now is the best way to help the organization in the long run. Um, and they can't approve this now. Or maybe they have 400 other POs that were submitted before my request and they're understaffed, and three of the people are homesick, and they're really stuck. We don't usually think that way, right? Because we're so burdened with the endless number of tasks that we have to get through. You know, budgets get keep getting cut, goals and objectives keep becoming more aggressive and aspirational, and the complexity of the workplace is just becoming unbearable. We'll talk about that later in this podcast. And we just want what we want, right? And this connects to the to emotional intelligence and our ability to delay gratification and, and deal with not being satisfied immediately and deal with unexpected slowdowns without losing our ability to really appreciate the challenges that the people who we interact with and depend on are facing. We can still be assertive. We can still insist that we need that PO. But do we call them or send them an angry email or do we stop and say, let me try to figure out why they just said no. Or let me just, let me see why they said it would take them three weeks. 
let me try to deal with this incident as part of the next 20 interactions I have with procurement, not just as part of putting out this fire. So when I say that operational empathy is our ability to understand and relate to the challenges and frustrations of our key stakeholders and our critical interfaces, this is what I'm talking about. And my premise here is simple. I think we all accept the importance of empathy in building healthy and productive interactions between individual human beings, right? I mean, I'm going to take that as a given. And if it's not a given for you, I strongly recommend you really dive in more and more to so much of the research that has been put out there about the importance of empathy um, between people, not just in conflict resolution, but in building healthy, productive relationships. So my premise here is that it's just as important for building crucial, healthy, and productive interactions in the workplace to have operational empathy between departments within an organization. By the way, especially large, complex, global organizations. Um, And by the way, not just between two internal organizations, but also between an internal organization and an external one like customer vendor relations or um, our partnerships with channel partners. The expression or the presence of empathy between departments in the workplace is what I call operational empathy. And sadly, it seems that there are some very powerful forces and trends that are in fact having a negative impact on an organization's ability to cultivate this crucial emotional component in its operational landscape. And what I want to do now is I want to share with you what these forces are. In fact, they're trends. Um, One of them goes back hundreds of thousands of years and the other just a few decades. But they are all very, very powerful in undermining the cultivation of operational empathy. And as soon as we can identify them as such, well, we can take a more proactive approach to mitigating them. And I will share with you uh, in today's episode some recommendations on how you can do that as an individual and then also as a leader in your organization so that you can do it as a systematic thing in the organization and not just with your specific key stakeholders. So the first trend is really a macro-social trend. This is the social evolution of the Homo sapiens sapient as a species. And It's a trend that's been running for hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, there's a whole, there's unclear evidence as to the Homo sapiens sapien being around for 250,000 years, some say 500,000 years, but it really doesn't matter. Um, the, The idea stands. If you think about our social evolution over these hundreds of thousands of years, you can really narrow it down to this idea of us moving in our social structures from closely knit groups to a global community of strangers. And this is a concept that I really was first exposed to when I read the mind-blowing book by uh, Yuval Noah Harari, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Really, really an incredible piece of work where he offers uh, a really high, high, high level view of how we've evolved over these hundreds of thousands of years. You go back even as little as 5,000 years ago, 
Now, I know 5,000 years sounds like a long time, but in the broader context of 400, 500,000 years, it's really nothing, right? And you think about the nature of our social interactions throughout our lives. Well, for the most part, we interacted with maybe 50 to 150 people our entire lives. And when we did interact with other people, there were certain components or dynamics that were just baked into the interaction. They were there a priorically. For example, you had physical proximity, right? 5,000, 10,000 years ago, you didn't interact with people remotely. If you were communicating or interacting with somebody, that meant that they were earshot from you and they could see you. And usually it also meant that this was somebody that you already knew and had shared memories with. You grew up with them. You hunted with them. Uh, you knew the same people as them, right? This is the concept of shared social connections. You spoke the same mother tongue, right? You didn't need translators 10,000 years ago because if you spoke to somebody, they necessarily spoke the same mother tongue as you. And I don't think there was ever such a thing as cross-cultural gaps five to 10,000 years ago because you probably didn't travel far enough to interact with somebody from another culture. Well, fast forward to today and you're not interacting with 100 to 150 people, 50 to 150 people your entire lives. You're interacting with thousands of people every day. Now, let me be clear. When I say interact, think of this from a social evolutionary perspective. If you're in a subway station and there are maybe 100 to 200 people in the station waiting for the subway, that's an interaction from a social evolutionary perspective because you can see them and they can see you. And if you want to talk about it from a survival perspective, they're close enough to throw a spear at you and kill you. So you're driving your car on the highway and there are hundreds of cars around you and you can see them and they can see you and technically they could ram into you. From an evolutionary survival point of view, that's an interaction. So now we're interacting with thousands of people a day. And even the ones that we actually have a more meaningful interaction with, an intended purposeful interaction with, like we call to get customer service um, or we have a work session with our team, do we really have physical proximity baked in? Well, we don't. Just, just take a look at your calendar over the last week or two. How many of the interactions you had took place via email, phone call, teleconference, um, video call versus with the person sitting in front of you, where you can see them nodding their head, when you can see their facial expressions, where your brain can register, even unconsciously, their micro-expressions, right? or the expansion of their pupils as, a, as an emotional response to you. How many people do you, that you interact with today would you say that you have meaningful, comprehensive social connections with or shared social connections? How many of the people that you interact with today would you say that you have meaningful shared memories with? How many of the people that you interact with today grew up speaking the same language as you do, or are you also speaking English as a second language? This is really important. When you're speaking a non-native language, compare that to how well you express yourself in your native tongue, and compare how well you're able to pick up nuances from other people who speak a language that's not native to you. And I think it's fair to say that we have such a diverse, multicultural working environment today that the luxury of communicating with somebody who has the same exact cultural background as us doesn't exist. 
which means we constantly have to deal with signals that we don't necessarily know how to interpret. And this is very, very important. When somebody 5,000 years ago came across somebody who wasn't familiar to them, who didn't dress the way they did, or didn't have the same past experiences, or didn't speak the same language, when we came across a stranger, what are the three famous responses, the three Fs that we talk about when we meet a stranger? First of all, we all accept that meeting a stranger is registered for most of us, at least from an historical evolutionary perspective, as a threat, right? We grew up even being told, don't talk to strangers, stranger equals danger. And when our Neanderthal brains, our prehistoric cave people brains, experience danger or a stranger, what do we do? We fight, we flight, we freeze, right? The three famous Fs. About 15 years ago, a new major development led to a fourth F, which we call upon when we meet somebody we don't know. It's called Facebook. How many times have you immediately gone to Facebook to look somebody up, met them at a party, heard about them, somebody mentioned them? And one of the first things we want to do when you look at somebody's profile, there's literally a tab dedicated to the friends we have in common. Why? Because Facebook understands how important that is to drive interactions. And so how much of the modern workplace is designed to bake into the interaction a priorically those five elements I mentioned before versus how much of the modern workplace is designed to actually constantly trigger our brain to be anxious because it's being confronted by somebody who it's registering as dangerous. That's very, very important. And speaking about the corporate workplace, this, this takes me to the second trend. This trend is not 500,000 years old. It's maybe, I don't know, I want to say 200, 200 years. It's, it's a trend that begins a little bit before the Industrial Revolution. And it talks about the evolution of the corporate structure or organizational structure of corporations. If you think about it, long before the world became a global village, companies were predominantly local and their structure was predominantly hierarchical where you had a pyramid which represented the entire organization. You had one identity because you reported to one master, so to speak. You had one person at the head of that pyramid. And that single identity and single master automatically cultivated better interactions, collaboration, coordinated execution among the people in that pyramid. But the rise of the Industrial Revolution and travel really made the world a smaller place. And as the world became smaller, companies became bigger. And these local companies became these global corporations, these massive conglomerates. And now, as the organizations grew bigger, they needed to have more and more pyramids. And they did what we do a lot of times, right? We, we do what worked for us before. So we had a pyramidical, hierarchical structure. Let's just replicate that. We'll have another pyramid, another pyramid, and it will all report to the top. That's fine. But what organizations began realizing is that these pyramids don't talk well to each other. When, when somebody makes a mistake in one pyramid, it's very, very likely that mistake will be repeated again and again and again in other pyramids. And so we're really losing a lot of efficiency. The organization's not learning from its own mistakes. So how can we get the organization to learn from its own mistakes? Well, we can create centers of excellence, right? This led to the rise of the matrix management structure. 
Now what we have is the top of the pyramid. That's where management and sales sit. But now all the other entities at the base of the pyramid that support the top of the pyramid, the support organizations such as IT, finance, legal, HR, procurement, travel, facilities, site management, all of those, we're going to turn them into their own internal organizations. And we're going to entrust every one of them to become a center of excellence that supports the various pyramids. But any person working in IT is now reporting to the head of IT. And the job of IT, of the head of IT, is to make sure that all people working within IT share information, share lessons learned, share best practices, and then bring those best practices to the various pyramids as gatekeepers of excellence in that specific domain. So the IT people supporting the head of the European division and the head of the Asia-Pacific region is basically bringing to that region best practices, but also serving as a gatekeeper to make sure the region doesn't violate these best practices, which now means that we don't just have one master. We have professionals in the company working for two masters. I report to IT. That's my solid line. But I support European division. That's my dotted line. And I have to keep both of them happy. But really, there are some conflicting interests here as far as short versus medium to long-term interest of the organization. And suddenly, we shift from the local loyalty of a singular pyramid to the concept of global excellence and the challenge of serving two masters. This made organizations better, no doubt. This made organizations more professional. It dramatically improved internal efficiencies. But it came at a cost. And I think you're all feeling it. If you work in one of these organizations, the costs I'm about to describe to you will probably not be surprising. First, we now have these large companies that really are made up of fragmented corporate identities. You ask people, where do you work for? They might say the company they work for, but they're most likely to lead with the entity within the company they work for, right? So I work for Microsoft IT. I work for Vodafone Connected Home. And suddenly you have these fragmented identities that from a social perspective are creating internal clans. Now add to that, that these internal clans are each measured by different operational goals because IT is measured by the quality of the infrastructure, the availability of the infrastructure, how safe it is from cyber attacks, but legal isn't. Legal is measured only by how compliant the organization is and how safe it is from lawsuits. Finance isn't measured by lawsuits or IT infrastructure capabilities, it's measured by doing the right thing from a tax perspective, and so on and so on and so on. So now you have conflicting short-term operational goals, which are taking this single clan that all works together in the old form of the pyramid and turning it into almost a war zone within the organization, right? And I think we can agree this is not conducive to operational empathy. Not to mention that we now also have competition over resources because now I should get the budget because my goals are more important than your goals because you're measuring me. You told me I have to reach these goals. I That's what I'm doing. I don't care about your goals. So the evolution of the modern organizational structure, which is now again going through some form of evolution, organizations are becoming flatter, yes, but still organizations are still working based on this idea of uh, global centers of excellence and excellence gatekeepers, and it cannot currently avoid, unless it does some very specific things that we'll talk about later today, it doesn't, it can't avoid 
the costs that I've just listed, these three things, fragmented corporate identity, conflicting short-term goals, and a fierce competition for resources. And if that's not enough to kill operational empathy, we have the evolution of interpersonal communication tools. Right? And if you think about it, on the one hand, humanity is thriving. Right? We've never had more of our species inhabiting the planet. And we're productive. We have amazing resources. We're now, we've landed on the moon. We're now exploring landing on Mars. Uh, we've split the atom. We're doing gene therapy. And there's so many amazing things, artificial intelligence, medical breakthroughs, reduction of cost of energy, uh, really improving the state of many of the people around the world who are poor. Humanity is thriving. There's no argument. So we could agree that a lot of this is contributed by the ability to share knowledge and interact with each other from greater distances and in shorter time frames. And all of this is brought about um, very much so by the development of advanced technological communication tools. But can we say that there's a correlation between the rise of the ability of communication technologies and the quality of the communication? And I think probably not. My experience shows that we're seeing a dramatic drop in the quality of communication. Why? Well, if you think about it, when you're interacting with somebody face-to-face -face, in physical proximity of each other and you can see each other, just think about how much information is conveyed to our brains through our various senses when we interact with each other, right? We see each other. I said that before. We see our micro-movements. We get, we get literal feedback loops. We even smell each other. We see how we're dressed. We see the posture of the individual. A lot of those signals have been eliminated as a result of the rise of communication technologies. When you're sending somebody an email, they don't really, they can't really hear the tone. Sure, there's, um, you can put things in caps and you can put things in bold and you can underline and you can do exclamation marks. And in fact, we do that because we need to add an emotional cue, right, to what we're saying. But it's nothing like what we see when we're in the room with somebody. Even when we do video conferencing with people, we don't yet have the quality of video conferencing that can actually make me see the expansion of the other person's pupils, not to mention we're seeing them in a two-dimensional setting. Now, maybe all that will change with the rise of, you know, of virtual reality, and I hope so. But for now, critical signals in the communication process are lost in return for being able to use technologies that take our ideas further and faster. And if you ask me, it's no surprise that we're seeing an incredible, you know, explosion of things like emojis and animated GIFs. And there's also research now showing that people who use emojis are better communication communicators. It's no surprise. Our brains and proper social interactions require a lot of the emotional layers that come when we convey ideas to each other. So emojis are the response to that, if you ask me. And I encourage you to use it. And you might say, yeah, but really, I can use emojis with a client or with my boss? Yes, be, you know, be culturally sensitive to which emojis you're using and you know, use it with good measure. But I, you look at my text messaging, it's packed with emojis. And I feel more comfortable when I'm communicating with an emoji that I'm getting the right message across. So these three trends that are really, really undermining the ability to cultivate operational empathy 
all to me come together to kind of lead to a conclusion that the human operating system that's been developing for hundreds of thousands of years to help us survive is no longer relevant or even beneficial to our survival today in the 21st century, or rather, we don't even talk about survival anymore, right? We talk about our ability to be successful and happy in the full sense of the terms. We have to reconsider how our brains are working. We have to reconsider the operating system that's driving our behavior because that operating system has evolved over many, many years to help us survive in a social environment or in a, you know, or a natural environment where there might be a snake in the bush where somebody from the other village might come overnight and attack us, where there's a massive competition for resources, where there's scarcity all around. But that's not the case for many of us. We now live in an age of abundance. We now don't have to fear at least the majority of us. I'm not even sure it's true to say the majority of us at a species level, but if we, if we inhabit a developed democratic country, if we live in Canada or the U.S. or Europe, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Israel, of course, well, we don't have to worry about a lot of those things. When you think about, for example, how we respond to uh, modern threats like global terrorism organizations, the amount of fear they cultivate is not proportionate to the actual damage they can cause. But we have 24-hour news channels. We have 80-inch screen TVs in our living room showing us a bloody attack that actually happened yesterday, 6,000 miles away from me, but my brain developed at a time where it doesn't know what a television is. It doesn't comprehend the idea of seeing something happening now that actually isn't happening now or happening here that actually isn't happening here. It, 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 a part of our brain can deal with it, the system two, which I'll talk about in a minute, but our brain is dominated by system one, that instinctive system based on rules of thumb called heuristics that immediately primes us into a certain state of mind. And if we don't learn how to adjust and curb the impact of that age-old operating system, which from now on I'm going to call system one, if we don't learn how to empower system two, the more modern, rational, data-driven part of our brain, not only are we going to be very hard-pressed to create operational empathy, but generally we're going to be less productive and I'm going to say much less happy. So I've mentioned system one and system two. Let's just very quickly clarify what I'm talking about, right? This is all part of a broader field called behavioral economics. Behavioral economics uh, studies the effect of psychological, cognitive, emotional, cultural, even social factors um, of economic decisions of individuals and institutions. And just how those decisions vary from other implied theories of decision-making, like the rational decision-making model from the early 80s. Um, behavioral economics was really created by two Israeli um, researchers in the field of psychology that actually won the Nobel Prize for economics back in 2002. Actually, only one of them won, uh, Professor Daniel Kahneman. Um, but really, it was for a body of research that had been developing for probably about 40 years, along with his lifelong academic partner, Amos Tversky, who had passed away from cancer prior to being able to be part of the award. And I strongly recommend 
that you take some time, if you're not already familiar, to study a little bit about behavioral economics, because I believe that today being familiar with this field is no longer reserved just for academics or a select few who have a passion for interpersonal dynamics or the study of decision-making. No, 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 no. Understanding behavioral economics today is just as important as knowing how websites work, how to use a computer. I see this as a foundational component for anybody who wants to survive and thrive in the age of the digital revolution. Just given how, how fast our lives are moving today and how you know, the, the unprecedented number of people we interact with, not to mention the various mediums through which we interact with them, knowing ourselves better through the study of behavioral economics, which really is the study of the human operating system, is critical. Now, if you want to do some really heavy lifting, then you can read books like Prospect Theory or Thinking Fast and Slow, both by Daniel Kahneman. Um, these are like heavy set academic books. They're readable, but you know, it's not going to be your Sunday morning coffee read. Um, but you don't have to. You don't have to dive that deep. I don't want to go. I don't want to push you too far. You can also read books like The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, which does an amazing job of offering us kind of a parallel track in the book. One is the biography of Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, and the, you know the history of their academic partnership on the one hand, and then he weaves into that a second track, which is an introduction to their groundbreaking findings. Um, such a well-written book, you know, not surprising given that Michael Lewis wrote it. Um, or you can read any one of the many books written by uh, Dan Ariely, who was a student of Tversky and Kahneman, and is his, you know is today one of the most uh, noted experts in this field. These books are written in a much more enjoyable, relatable, and, and digestible way. And if you read just a few of these books, you'll definitely meet the threshold that I think is a minimal requirement literacy in today's world. So, so now the question is this. Are we doomed? You know, given the fact that there's a grand canyon between our natural embedded operating system that's been developing for hundreds of thousands of years and the nature of the world we currently exist in that's only been developing for maybe, I want to say, 100 years. Depends on your historical interpretation. 200 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, it doesn't matter. Like, what fraction is that amount of time out of the last 500,000 years? So it's clear that while the conditions in which we live are changing at an unprecedentedly rapid rate, our brain and our natural evolution cannot keep up with that rate. And so there's a huge chasm between the operating system that dominates us and the environment we live in. And I believe that's a source of huge anxiety. I believe that's a source of a lot of depression in the world. And I'm sure that it's the source of tremendous inefficiencies in the workplace. So the good news is, is that, yes, we're not doomed. Th this, this gap can be mitigated and it can be narrowed. Um, I will tell you that it's a long and tough road to travel. It requires continuous systematic effort, but it's possible. It doesn't require like a massive IQ. It doesn't require a naturally born talent. It just requires proactive hard work. And the good news is, is that it does work. If you put your mind to it and you study these things, you will see a remarkable turnaround. Um, and when you get there, when it does work for you, you'll feel like, like magic just happened. You'll feel like you've suddenly gained this superpower. So what is this path that I'm recommending? Well, I'll summarize it with three words. Back to basics. What do I mean by that? Let me, let me give you an example. I was working with um, 
a manager who worked for a quality assurance testing department in an organization. Quality assurance departments are the ones that review the code that's written for software, and if there's a bug, they fix it. And one of the common, most frequent arguments between uh, the people providing the service and the people consuming the service um, is that the people who are consuming the service will say, hey, this isn't working, please fix it. And the people providing the service will say, um, what you're saying that isn't working isn't a bug. It's just something we never built into the system because you never asked for it. You're asking for a new request or a change request in the software. That's going to cost you more money. And then the client says, that's not true. This is a bug. Fix it. I'm not paying any more for this. So I'm talking to the person who was on the provider side. And I say, show me an email that illustrates an example of, you know, an, un an unresolved uh, dynamic. So he shows me an email that the customer sent him obviously copied on 12 other people that says, hey, can you please fix this bug? And I say, well, show me your response. And he says, very simple, reply all, of course. This is not a bug. This is a new request. Okay. How did the other person answer? It's a bug. Copy all. How did you respond? No, it isn't. It's a new request. Reply all. And he starts showing me, we scroll down on his phone just to see the thread of this email. They went back and forth like this. No, it's not. It's a bug. No, it's not. It's a new request. 12 times while copying 12 other people. Just think about how much noise that's creating. So obviously, my natural response to this individual was, okay, um, when is this person in town? When can you meet them in person? He says, what do you mean? He sits over there and he literally points three cubicles down. When I say back to basics, I mean, go back to all the elements that I had mentioned before, when possible, of course, to allow for meaningful interactions. If the person sits in the same venue that you do and there is a sensitive issue that's not being resolved or that you think may become sensitive and you want to preempt and make sure it's resolved well in advance, walk over, have a face-to-face -face meeting. That's number one. Number two, find opportunities for non-functional interaction. Don't wait till you need somebody just to interact with them. Bring them a cup of coffee or, you know, chat them up in the kitchen or sit next to them in lunch or just find out more about them. And if you know that they love a certain topic and you come across an interesting blog or TED Talk or whatever, just shoot them an email and say, hey, I thought about you. thought this might interest you. I know you're into this and this. When I say back to basics, I mean... When possible, or when the cost-benefit ratio makes sense, make a proactive effort to re-include some of the building blocks of good interpersonal dynamics the way they were 5,000 years ago. Physical proximity, um, you know, talking to them in a language that, that's native to them when you can. Having a non-functional interaction, getting to know the people out of work, not just at work. These can be very, very valuable for you individually. Now, I'm not suggesting you do this all the time. I'm not suggesting you do this with everybody. That can be tough. Um, do it when it counts. Do it, when, do it with a select number of people who are your key stakeholders, who are your critical interfaces. Start by cultivating operational empathy with them. Learn more. Ask them to tell you a little bit about their problems. Be the barkeeper for them and let them you know, cry out their troubles over, over a drink. You, you'll be amazed not only at how well they respond to you next time you need them, you'll be amazed at what you learn about them and about the broader context that you may be blind to of why they behave in a certain way. 
you'll be surprised at what you'll learn. It's pretty amazing. Now, um, a lot of times I'm asked, well, you know, Ariel, what happens when two people that learned all of this from you, they know all of this? What then? Does it help the interaction? Or does it just make it a constant <laughs> mutual manipulation process? So first of all, I want to say manipulation is not a bad thing when the intention is, is productive, right? Engineered behavior is not a bad thing, depending on the intention. Conflict resolution, mediation, they're all forms of, of engineered behavior. Studying the culture of your customer and respecting it and demonstrating respect for it is an engineered behavior, right? You wouldn't do that otherwise. Does it make it bad? No, it doesn't. It depends on, are you trying to build a win-win dynamic? Are you trying to give, not just get? Are you doing it out of respect? Are you trying to create an outcome that both sides can appreciate? Will they later regret what you led them to do with you because they'll feel manipulated or will they be thankful for you using behavior that's engineered to facilitate an outcome that everybody wants? Are you demonstrating respect or are you overriding the other person? So intention is very important. That's number one. Number two, the more people know this, the more likely the interaction to be productive because if somebody falters, the other person can compensate. So this is very, very important. Now, I've just given you some back-to-basic tips on how to do this as individuals. What if you're a leader in your organization and you're trying to, to, to really foster a systematic culture of operational empathy, one that is self-sustaining, one that is all-encompassing, one that is part of the organizational culture and DNA? Well, what you want to do here is you want to think of all the ways that you can make it easy for the individuals to do the things I just recommended to them to do as individuals. Can you um, consider how meetings are scheduled? Can you invest in infrastructure that allows for more video-based interactions? Can you create opportunities that are built into the organizational flow for non-functional interactions? Um, I can tell you the answer is yes. It will require sacrifices because these things many times can require adjustments in schedule. Um, they can require um, giving up a little bit of short-term productivity in favor of medium to long-term productivity. But it, it, if it's done well, it doesn't require tremendous sacrifices that would undermine your ability to meet even the next year's targets. And probably the most powerful thing you can do is you can invest in Offsites, retreats, these are multi-day, day and night, out-of-office interactions where people can have intensive, extensive, meaningful interactions where there's an opportunity for both functional and non-functional interaction between these people. Now, I know this is it's an investment because this means people are not at work, so to speak, even though I would argue this is work, but they're not in the office answering emails, they're not taking calls, they're not meeting customers, they're not building presentations, um, they're not writing code. Yes, that's not to mention the fact that this requires travel in many cases, um, airfare, hotels. You probably want to do it right, so you want to hire somebody from the outside to help you with it unless you have somebody internal who's very experienced in this. And there are a lot of freely available resources um, that you can use. But I would argue that not doing this is being penny-wise and pound-foolish. You should try this out once or twice and see the immediate impact. 
you should look at the operational landscape, create a map of the critical interfaces that interact with each other, or identify teams of more than five to 10 people who operate in remote sites and are in fact virtual teams, get them in the same room for two to three days at a time, maybe three to four times a year, and watch the magic unfold. And that travel time, um, the downtime, the airfare, the hotels, add all of that up into some dollar value, you will probably see a 10 to 50x return on that dollar value, even within the same budget year, precisely because what you'll be doing is saving yourself all of the cost of the lost efficiency due to lack of operational empathy, due to endless escalations, delays in project deliveries, fights, arguments, um, people not stepping up for each other, not forgiving each other, not responding fast enough to each other, not giving each other what they need for the project to be completed on time. And when you factor in all of the costs of that friction, all of that last lost productivity, you'll probably get an, an order of magnitude more dollar value and lost value than what it would cost you to do these offsites. And by the way, these offsites don't have to be elaborate and you know extravagant. Maybe do one big one a year, do another medium one every six months, and then do two in-office ones every quarter and you will see the returns by the second or third offsite. It's really very powerful because think about it. Everything your organization does, you know, the, the ability to take your strategy and execute it. You've built the most amazing product. You're in the right market. You're pricing it correctly. You've created an organizational structure. You've hired the right people. But the execution of value, the extraction of value from all of these building blocks, at the end of the day, comes down to the human element in the equation. And so making sure that our operating systems are calibrated or at least respected and, and understood in the modern workday environment and, and, and compensating for the gap between these operating systems and the current operational environment we exist in is critical. Your people in your company are your most valuable resources. They're like any other computer or machine. You need to know, know how they operate and you need to manage them well. And fostering operational empathy is probably one of the most significant variables that's in your control, unlike market dynamics and competitive landscapes and geopolitical changes. This is something that's in your control. And you can see results fairly quickly. But it does require a top-down effort. It requires that you are consistent. It requires that your leadership models the necessary behavior. But it's doable. It works. I've seen it work so many times. So that's what I wanted to share with you all today. The idea of or the importance of operational empathy. All of the resources that I've spoken about today will be provided with this podcast, links to the books and to some additional research. I'll also share with you um, the very special formula that we use, the six building blocks for creating effective offsites and other types of tips and recommendations for high-quality interactions in the workplace. Um, and I really, really hope that in the very least, you will walk away from this podcast just contemplating you know, where we come from as a species and where we are today and where we're going in the next several decades and appreciate the growing gap between the code in our brain that's driving our behavior and the environmental circumstances that are also driving our behavior and that they are not aligned. But as soon as they become aligned, we can become more productive, more beneficial, and happier 
probably than any time in history. Okay, that is it for today. I will see you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Greater Context with Ariel Halevi. For more shows and other great content, visit TelavivePresents.com slash The Greater Context. See you next time.